Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastwardly, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of God. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Dean. Michael, I'm interested to see what, what you're going to pull out of this one. <laughs> All right, um, welcome everyone. So I just want to start with a little bit of a recap, and I'll try not to give away too much, as Graham was trying to keep it a secret to make you listen to last week's sermon online. Uh, but just sort of recapping where we've come from in terms of you know, Genesis 1, Graham was talking about that as a cosmic temple and the inauguration of that. Um, in Genesis 2, we looked at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and seeing them as priests in the temple and the garden as a God's dwelling place and the special place where man and God go to meet. Then we looked at the fall and how humans failed to live up to what they were meant to do as priests and how they doubted God's goodness and chose their own will instead of God's. And then Graham spoke about the story of Cain and Abel, which was a pretty sort of dark chapter, um, about the, the first murder and again showing humans failing to live up to God's will and what happens when they go out on their own. And last week, Jay was speaking about the flood, which, as Graham mentioned, was, it was a really awesome sermon. So if you missed it, look it up online. It's very eye-opening for a lot of us. But yeah, the main thing he was focusing on there, that is, even after this you know, disastrous flood wiping out 99.99% of humans, the problem of sin is still here. Jay drew attention to chapter 6, Before the Flood, where it says... The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of their thoughts, of the thoughts of the human heart, was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So it paints this picture that sin isn't this small little thing. In, in Genesis 2, when he creates man, he says they created in my image, and he gives them purpose and value and they're sort of quite highly esteemed. And yet, six chapters later, he regrets making them and describes them as their hearts. The thoughts of their hearts are only evil all the time. That's quite a, quite a difference from six chapters onwards, isn't it? Definitely failing to live up to 
those standards. And Jay pointed out that um, even with God showing grace to Noah and his family, he chose the, the best of the human race ready to start over, and that they've just witnessed this massive judgment from God, showing them how serious this problem of sin is. And the story seems to be setting up for a fresh start. You know, the waters recede, they're told to come out of the ark with the same commands echoing from Genesis 2, go out, multiply, fill the earth. So it's set up for this, you know, okay, we'll start again, we'll get it right this time. And it's finally moving in a positive direction. And you'd almost expect the next page to say something like, and they all live happily ever after, you know, the end. But, but as the very next page, the story of Noah ends with that really weird chapter of Noah getting drunk, naked, some complicated family relationships involves him cursing his younger son and all his offspring. And it's, you know, it's quite a shock um, to see that this was the best of the human race and you know, the best chance at a fresh start, and this is where we end up not too long later. Did anyone see that movie Noah a few years ago? The, the guy from The Gladiator? Yeah, that's fine. No one saw it. You're not missing anything. It was a shocker of a movie. Um, But a lot of the reviews were really critical of it, saying, again, what a rubbish movie it was. But the whole thing was very inaccurate biblically, apart from the last, the end of it resulted in him getting drunk and, you know, losing his mind a bit. And no one liked that. That's not a nice end to a story, is it? You've got this character who's following God's will, doing what he should. He's, you know standing up against everyone else, and then at the end he's still just as bad as everyone else. And, yeah, got terrible reviews because it's a rubbish movie and a rubbish storyline. <laughs> we don't want to see that. I just thought that was interesting. The one, the one thing they sort of got right was the one that no one likes to see. So last week we ended in Chapter 9, and after our reading today, um, the, today's reading was Chapter 11, so I just want to quickly explain what we've skipped in Chapter 10 because it is quite important. So chapter 10 is one of those really boring passages with a big list of names and places, and it gives us the lineage of Noah's son, that you know, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, and they went here, and then this guy gave birth. and went. It's a really boring list, so I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, but in the context of this bigger story, it is quite important, because in chapter 9 it's saying, I want you to go out and fill the earth and multiply. If you read chapter 10 that's a positive thing. It looks like they're doing what they're told. They're going out, filling the earth, they're multiplying. That's a good sign. So again, finally, if, if we didn't know in advance what was going to happen, we'd be reading this and sort of cheering and saying, you know, things are looking good again, finally. This is great. But then we come to the start of chapter 11, the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, and just a note, that this, this story is sort of sandwiched in between a list of, again, these lineages of people multiplying and moving out. So chapter 10 is all this boring list of names. Then we have the Tower of Babel story. Then it continues with more list of names and spreading out. So it's kind of like this little snippet of disobedience sandwiched between generally people doing what they're told. So in chapter 11, our reading for today, it appears that the story is zooming in on a particular group of people. While everyone is moving out across the earth and doing what they're told, this specific group of people are doing something different. It says, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in China, Shinar, and settled there. They've said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. 
Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So this region of China is in modern-day Iraq. Um, And in chapter 10, one of the names mentioned is this guy called Nimrod. And it says that he moves into this area and it mentions a couple of the city names. It says, Kush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centres of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalni in China. So it's attributing him to this region. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh and a bunch of other places. So this is how we get the location of this area, China, and linking it to what we know of Babylon. Um, And some early Jewish rabbis interpret the phrase in this story that the people spoke one language. They interpret that to mean that they were of one mind or of one voice, that they were united in aggression towards God. Um, They claim that there was an idol placed at the top of this tower holding a sword as if to wage war against God. And and I share this as it's a little bit of a grey area. I'm not telling you this is what happened. When you start looking at what the ancient Jewish rabbis teach, you'll get ten opinions. And yeah, So I'm I'm not saying that this is definitely how it was, but it's interesting that this is the the sort of extra colour that they read into the story and this is the tone of what's going on there. And I don't think it seems too far-fetched to, to agree with that. So, it's, yeah, it's just really the interesting subtext that they read into this story. Um, and they also talk a lot about this guy, Nimrod. Um, in short, that he's not a very nice guy. Um, here in the Bible, it just sort of describes him as a mighty hunter before the Lord. But again, this is often interpreted as waging war against God. Um, and even the name Nimrod, you know, even today, you hear that name thrown out. It's not a compliment, is it? If you call someone a Nimrod, you're not. It's not got good connotations with it. So, in the ancient city of Babylon, there's some ruins of a ziggurat, and they're kind of like a clunky, blocky version of a pyramid. And there's this one site, I'm going to butch the pronunciation, E Temenanki. Anyone know any better than that? No? We'll stick with that. All right. So it's been suggested that this is a possible location for the Tower of Babel. Um, Maybe, maybe not. At least it's um, architecturally similar to the sort of things that were being built at that time, and it's in it's 90 k's south of the city of Babylon. So, you know, it's ticking a few boxes that it's our best bet if we're ever going to find anything. Um, And I'll share a little bit more about the history of this thing because it's really interesting. Who, who's claimed ownership of it, who they believe it's been attributed to in terms of what gods are worshipped there and represented. Um, I think it, it relates a lot to the story, but we'll talk about that later. So going on in this passage, there's a, there's a few things that are going on here. So a couple of the things that they've done wrong is that they're, first of all, aiming to build a city, to build a tower, to reach into the heavens. They aim to make a name for themselves and aim not to be dispersed throughout the earth. So the city and the tower are kind of outward expressions of the sins that are going on. So first of all, there's the love of human praise, you know, making a name for ourselves so that people will think well of us. You know, those people in Babylon, they're so smart and creative, they can build all these great things. And there's also security, self-reliance, not re- rather than relying on God for the security. And John Piper 
contrasts us with what God's will it was for humanity. He says, God's will for humans is not that we find our joy in the praise of human beings, but in praising him. God's will is not that we find security in the things we build, or the places we go, and in locks and alarms that we can create. God's will is that our trust is in him. So again, looking at this list of what's going on here, what's important to note is that each of these things were specifically in defiance of what God instructed them, but also each of these things in a different context aren't actually wrong in themselves. So first of all, aiming to build a city. As a general statement, God doesn't have an issue with people living in cities. We read later in the Old Testament that God actually chooses a city for his name to dwell forever, being Jerusalem, the holy city. The problem here is that it's going against the specific instructions for them at this particular point in history. The second one, building a tower to reach into the heavens. And again, there's not really too much of an issue with this. We hear of God coming down on Mount Sinai, which was a high place. The temple in Jerusalem was built on a hill. Worshipping God on a high place isn't necessarily a bad thing. But also in saying that, we read of many times in the Old Testament where it was instructed to destroy those high places that were put up when man decides this is what we want to do. It's quite different when God says, this is the place you will worship. You see the connection there? It's, it's not a problem with the high place. It's not a problem with the tower or the city. It's the reason for doing so, and whether it was initiated by man or God. Even the third one, aiming to make a name for themselves. When man aims to do that, that's bad, right? But the very next chapter, as I assume we'll see next week or in the coming few weeks, in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham that I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. But there's quite a difference there, isn't there? God making someone's name great is quite different from someone deciding to make their own name great. And the fourth one, aiming not to be dispersed throughout the earth. So this, this is a defiance to what they're specifically told to do, to go and spread out, to, to be my ambassadors, to be my image bearers, and make my name known to all creation. And they're saying, no, we will go and make a name for ourselves. And again, at different points in history, it's quite okay to be living in cities and gathering and being close to your family and all those things. It's just when it's on the opposition of what God has commanded to do. In verse 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And there's a little bit of irony going on here. The writer isn't implying that God doesn't know what's going on. It's kind of written this way as a bit of an insult that you know, the all-seeing God has to come down from heaven to get a closer look to see what they were getting up to. So from man's perspective, we're building this big tower and it's reaching to the heavens and it's great. And then the all-seeing God has to actually come closer. You know, he can see everything anyway, but he has to come down and say, you know, oh, that, that's what you've been doing. That, that's a cute little project, you know, but didn't I tell you to go spread out it, you know? It's meant to be sort of insulting and you know, making fun of what they thought they were doing. The Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. 
From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So this part of the story is a bit odd. It, it kind of seems like God is worried about them building a city or a great tower. You know, if they've begun to build this tower, then they can build anything. And oh no, I must stop them. You know, if if that's what's really going on there, we should expect to never see any more ancient ruins of big, massive buildings. You know, even today we shouldn't be able to build skyscrapers because God stopped us from doing that. So clearly, that that's not going. What's going on here? He's not concerned about people building big things. And it doesn't actually make a lot of sense if, if that's how we view it. You know, a lot of ancient civilizations were built using slaves that didn't speak the same languages of their masters. You know, if I had a pile of bricks up here and I wanted you guys to build me a tower, I think I could, without talking, you know, point at you, point at a brick, point to the table. If you didn't get the picture, I could, you know, I'm not going to beat you, but with a few beatings, you would learn to pick that brick up and put it at the top of the hill. And you know, we can build things without speaking the same language. That's not going to make any impact in terms of stopping people building stuff. So what was God so concerned about? What had him so worried that humans were doing and might continue to do in an even bigger sense that caused him to intervene? And I mentioned before about those ancient Jewish traditions of Nimrod building the tower and waging war against God. And, and while that might be true, I also don't think that God was worried about you know, people overthrowing him in a military sense. And I think our sort of Sunday school pictures or, or stories give us the wrong impression here. Um, that you know, we're, They're building this long, skinny tower that's more like a ladder and trying to get up into the clouds. Um, those, what do we call them? The ziggurats, the blocky, the blocky pyramid temples that we looked at. That, that's what's filling this region, and in fact a lot of the earth um, at this point of time. And these aren't just a tall tower to get up high and have a good view. These were actually temples. The name Babylon, the name of the city, in the original language Akkadian, this means gate of God or, or gateway of God. And we've talked a lot about temple imagery recently and the purpose and the process of a temple. So this tower here that they're building is not just a tower, it's a temple and it's a gateway to God. What we know of temples is that they are a sacred space where man and God interact. So that their name Babylon, gateway to God building a temple, it starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it, than just, just a tower or a city. It's in the name itself is what they're declaring that this place is. And, and again, on the surface, building a temple isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, God does tell them later on to, to build him a temple and a special dwelling place where he can meet with them. But again, there's a difference between a sacred place that God initiates and man trying to create a place for God. In the ancient religions of this area, we read quite a few similar accounts of humans building temples and the gods they build them for have some quite different traits to the god of the bible and the relationships between god and humans is quite different too so humans build temples as a way to please god or the gods and these gods have needs they they need somewhere to live they need food offered in sacrifice they need entertainment sex the relationship between the ancient gods and humans was more of a symbiotic relationship. You know, they're saying, God, we'll build you this temple, we're going to bring you these offerings, and in exchange, you'll be pleased with us. You know, you'll look on us favorably, you'll protect us, you'll make our crops grow, whatever the specifics were of God. So it was viewed as a win-win situation. You know, God, we're helping you out by doing these things for you, and you'll help us out in return by doing these things. 
So this story, we're not just seeing humans creating a city and a tower. This is the first sign of organised false religion. In a sense, it's man attempting to summon God. You know, we'll build a place for God to dwell, and God will, and we'll give God what He needs from us. And in return, you know, everything's going to be great. People will come from all over the earth to meet God, and we'll be protected, and it's going to be so good. Everyone's going to think we're amazing. We've got this formula to success and safety. Again, that phrase, if one people speak in the same language, they've begun to do this. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I don't think God was concerned about them building cities or tall buildings. He was concerned with the false religion they were creating. There's no limit to what they would claim about God. They were were shaping God to be more like a human than God. A God with needs, a God that needs their food, their sacrifices. He needs them to entertain him with incense, music and sex. Who knows where it will end? And with those claims comes exploitation as well. The only way to God is to pay money to enter our temple or to travel a long distance to our city, you know, come to the actual place where you can worship God would be the claims. So not only are they misrepresenting God, they're also putting barriers up and preventing people from coming to worship as well. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. They will lead everyone astray, rise up everyone in opposition to God, prevent anyone from dying him. That was the concern. The book of Genesis was written well after these events actually took place. The authorship is attributed to Moses, written to give the people of Israel a true history of humanity and the world. It's a collection of their ancient stories passed down to them, And this was given to them in a time when all their neighbours are telling different stories. They all have a different name for God, or have multiple gods even, and they're making different claims about who this God is and what he wants. But it was at a time when there were thousands of different people uh, people in temples, and every nation seems to have a different claim of how to keep God happy. So a quick example of this, the same ziggurat that I was talking about, located in Babylon. There's so much history attributed just to this one building. So if we're going to assume that this is the site of the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, then it was probably originally dedicated to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Um, even if it wasn't the, the actual site of this, we do know a lot more about this site. Later on in 600 BC, the Persian king Nebuchadnezzar II mentions rebuilding this great ziggurat of Babylon, and it was dedicated to a god called Marduk. And he was kind of like their top god in, in their beliefs. So they're their supreme god they're dedicating this temple to. There's also um, the Greek historian Herodotus in 500 AD talks about this same site, the Ziggurat in Babylon, as being dedicated to Jupiter or Zeus, which again is the, the Roman and Greek names for their kind of top dog god. And in 330 BC, Alexander the Great planned to rebuild it, so it's still in rubble at this point. And he returns three years later to see that no progress was made, so he arranged that the remains would be demolished so that they could start from scratch. Uh, but he died before it could be rebuilt. So that's what we see today on the left there, just the foundations of this building. Um, and then it's also been attributed to another god called um, Bel, who was, I think he was Akkadian as well. And again, he was the, the Akkadian version of Zeus Jupiter. So again, 
four different names of gods for the position of the top god or the sky god that all want different things all in the same location. So how's that for confusing? Yeah, it's twisting the story of God, a temple that probably originally was wrongly created for the God of the Bible. And it's at a time when, the, after the language changes, maybe that name changes to Marduk or Zeus, Jupiter, and what we know about this God changes to all these different things. <coughs> Genesis 11 is the origin story of false religion. It's like God is saying... Originally, everyone knew me as the one true God, but then people started to gather together and tell lies about me. They made false claims about who I am and what I need, and they claimed to know what I want. Everyone spoke the same language, and there was a danger this, would, this lie would spread through the whole earth. So in that context, you might expect the next part of the story to be something like, and God decided to wipe them out for spinning lies about him. You know, from what we've just read in the flood, that... That sounds reasonable. But what we see is actually another act of grace. Rather than doing that, we see this strange act of deciding to confuse the languages of people. And this, this act of grace is also, it seems like a risky one on God's behalf, doesn't it? Like, I feel like if people are telling a false story to confuse their languages and make them scatter, now rather than having a true story and a false story, we've actually ended up with thousands of false stories, haven't we? It, it seems, at least from looking at it on the surface, that it's actually a, a, a bad call to do things this way, that it, it's adding to more lies about God and resulting in less people being able to know him for who he is. And I think this partly magnifies something about the character of God um, and his acting with grace, knowing the damage it would do to himself, embracing his name and character being slandered and accepting that people would tell lies about him. Not only that, but he also acts with grace, knowing that it would make his plan for redemption more difficult, and yet he continues to pursue it, which I guess is just you know, more impressive when he does manage to pull that off. It seems for a period of time the nations are left to spread out, free to start their rumours about God, twist what they know about him, and we end up with all these different stories. And the main message to the people of Israel from this point on is all about separating from others, you know, Keep your lineage and your beliefs pure. Don't marry from the other nations. Don't follow their gods or their beliefs. Stick to what you've been told and be loyal to me. And this, this is the message essentially to Israel for, for hundreds of years. It's not until after the death of Jesus at Pentecost where we see a reversal of what happened here, both symbolically and also with instruction. At Pentecost, we see people understanding each other's languages as bringing the nations back together and bringing the truth of Jesus. It's not just this weird event that's open to interpretation. Jesus also commands them to go into all the nations, to the ends of the earth, and tell them the good news. It's the opposite of confusion. It's clarity. Clarity of language and clarity of who God is. In the Old Testament, it always promises that this would happen, that salvation would be extended to all the nations. But it's always written of as a, as a future hope, at, a time, at the time, their specific instructions were always to be inwardly focused. Focus on staying pure, don't pay attention to what your neighbours are up to. And then now at the time of Pentecost, it's saying, go to the world and share the truth about me. It's time to clear things up. It's, that's quite a contrast. 
um, yeah, early early Jewish teachers would focus on teaching their own people, not not be evangelistic. That was secondary. If people are interested, that's great, but you don't go to them. We just need to mind our own businesses and worry about raising our kids the right way. It was definitely a lot more inwardly focused. And now as the world's told, as the Christian world's told to go out to all the nations and tell the truth about God, um, for a lot of these people and with these religions, the story of Jesus and God's plan of salvation is kind of, it's like it's half familiar. Like they knew part of the story, but they got some details confused or missed something. You often hear of people make generalizations that you know all religions are essentially the same and they're just different ways of saying what God wants. And, and I don't believe that for a second. But I do think that all humans share a common history and our ancestors are all linked back to the events here in Genesis. You know, these stories are passed down, they get distorted in different ways for different people as they spread out in different directions. And you know, the story your dad told you, you tell slightly differently. We have this common history that has been distorted, but there's still some common links in there, which is why we see some similarities in the teachings of other religions. And I find this sort of thing really interesting. Um, If you have a look on Google or Wikipedia, if you're interested in it, um, there's the story of the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel. I think I found nine ancient variations of a story of humans building a tower to the gods or to God and different consequences of it. Some of them, the tower collapses on them. Some of them, they disperse. But there's, again, variations from all over the world. This comes from Africa, Asia, North and South America. They're talking about building a building to storm the heavens or to do something to God, and there's a consequence in a negative way from it. It's really interesting. And same with the flood. Many accounts of a, a massive flood or a global flood and a guy building a boat rescuing some animals. And again, this is spoken in ancient cultures all throughout the world. They're they're telling these same stories that might have got distorted in various details, but that common link is there. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So this, this... this phrase is weird because it's actually it's technically incorrect. So they're saying that is why it is called Babel, because God confused them. Babel doesn't actually have anything to do with being confused in its original sense. So, so we haven't been told specifically that the name of the city that this was built in was Babylon. We know it was in the region where that city is. And we know that Babylon means gateway to God in Akkadian. Uh, but Babylon in Hebrew... Bab means gate or door, and Al is God. So, so Babel or Babel does mean gateway to God. It, it's, saying, it's the same as Babylon, but in, in Hebrew. But to go on and then say, this place is called Babel because God confused everyone, that connection isn't there in the original language. What, what they're doing, we, we miss it because we don't speak or read it, but I'm kind of making fun of it. There's another word... Rather than babel, there's balal, which means confused. So it's kind of a wordplay of mocking this city. Rather than calling it Babylon, we're going to call it this name that sounds like confused. It would be more like us saying um, city of Babylon, more like city of babbling, you know, because we, we know what that means in our time. Um, it, it's kind of like this running joke. I'd, um, I don't know if you've got friends as mean as mine, but you know, if, if you make a mistake and someone says, oh, I've done a Michael, you know, 
there's that sort of mocking, you know, they're calling it gateway to God, more like confusing, you don't know what you're talking about. That, that's, and that's the name of the city going forward for them. And that word's still used today, isn't it? For us, we talk of babble or babbling as nonsense and no one knows what you're talking about. Still the root of those words, bad and hell, means gateway to God. But we've, we've picked up on that joke of the name to be mocking it. Yeah, I find that quite interesting. So, yeah. The builders claimed that they were building a gateway to God, but God says, no, you're just confused. You've got this wrong. You're confused about who I am and what you're meant to be doing. And throughout the Bible, the name of Babylon becomes synonymous with false religious systems or with people defiantly opposing God's way of doing things. And it's referred to this way many times by the prophets and the New Testament writers and even in the book of Revelation. It's also used sort of as an opposite contrast to, the way of, to God's way of doing things often by contrasting Jerusalem, you know, describing a spiritual Jerusalem or a spiritual city compared to a spiritual Babylon. That there's a city according to the promise where God chose to make a great name of it, God blessing man by dwelling there. There's a right way to do things, God's way, compared to the city of Babylon where man is trying to make a great name on their own, telling everyone that this is the way to God or in a spiritual Babylon sense, mentioned by the prophets and in Revelation, that it's representing the wicked man-made religious systems. It's representing defiance and self-reliance and arrogant opposition to God. And and this story is a great picture of false religion, if you wanted to summarise it up. It's it's symbolised by building a tower to heaven. It's showing man reaching out to God. But no matter how much we try, and no matter how high we stretch we will never reach God, we will never succeed, and we will always fall short. The God of the Bible is different. The core beliefs of Christianity are the opposite to this. It's emphasised over and over again that it is God who reaches down to us. It is God coming in human form and dying for us to redeem us. Even that, that sort of core truth of Christianity that you know Jesus came and died for our sins, that wasn't something that humans orchestrated. We read in the New Testament... When Jesus came, we don't see people saying, oh, you're God, do you mind dying for our sins? Then everything will be great. You know, it, that wasn't a human idea. That it seems to have sort of snuck past humans, and it's not until after the fact that they realise what had happened. That wasn't man's plan of how to fix things and how to make things right. That was God. So if we just skim over that story out of context, it seems like God is just this mean God who shuts everything down. No city for you, no temple, no gateway to God, no great name for you. But actually all those things do happen, but all those things are given as gifts. They're not earned by anyone. So God tells Abraham later that he will make his name great, and you know, thousands of years later we're still talking about him, aren't we? I guess we're talking about the people of Babylon too, but in a different way, not in a great way, is it? God instructs David and Solomon to build him a temple, God's dwelling place on earth, and God declared Jerusalem to be his holy city, you know, and makes a promise of a new city to come as well. And most importantly, God did provide a gateway to God through Jesus. The story is about shutting down false religion of man earning salvation and about preserving a way to know the truth of God. You know, it's not denying that salvation or all those blessings will happen, 
but that they happen as gifts, not as works. And I think that's why God acted so quickly and decisively in this story. He knew what was being he knew what was at stake, how the story of salvation and character of God was so prone to being twisted. Christianity doesn't say, you know, do this work to reach God. It says there is nothing you can do. It is hopeless, at least if it depends on you. All you can do is trust God and the work he has done. Or if we were to put ourselves into the story at this point in history, it was about trusting in the plan that was still unfolding. As Graham mentioned the other week, trusting in the saviour who is still to come, the one who will crush the serpent once and for all. And I want to finish up with highlighting the main takeaway from this story, and it's a familiar one. We're going to probably sound like a broken record over the next few weeks. The message that's being emphasised is the same as in the fall of the, at the Garden of Eden, same as Cain and Abel in the flood of Noah. It's showing that humans haven't changed, that the problem of sin is still here, that man is reliably disobedient and sinful, that our hearts are geared towards evil. The sin of the builders of Babylon wasn't that they were building a city or a tower. The people were doing what seemed best for themselves and not what God had commanded. Their building project was symbolized, was what symbolized the pride and arrogance of humans who were trying to be equal with God. It was an outward expression of their hearts seeking to be free from reliance on God, and the people thought they could reach heaven on their own terms. And it's that same pattern that we're going to see repeated a lot. It's kind of as if God knew we'd be slow learners and that we'd need constant reminding that we are sinful, but also that we are loved and forgiven.